Welcome to Managing Sustainable Futures. Today, we are joined by Dr. Teresa Benio, a distinguished analytical physicist at NASA's Glenn Research Center. And she's also a fellow of NASA's Advanced Innovative Concepts Program. Dr. Benio is a trailblazer in nuclear science and engineering, with her work significantly contributing to the advancement of sustainable space exploration. In this episode, she'll share her journey from an undergraduate in physics to spearheading innovative research in lattice confinement fusion and her insights on integrating nuclear technology with sustainable solutions. Thank you, Teresa, for joining us today for this podcast on managing sustainable futures. Let us begin with your background in science, and in particular, what drew you to the field of nuclear science and engineering? Talk about your journey that has brought you to your current research at NASA. Yeah. Um, well, I always enjoyed um, math and science as a student, and um, my physics teacher in high school encouraged me to per, uh, pursue physics. Um, which I did at Kent State University. Um, and during my studies there, I had a, a class, Introduction to Nuclear Physics, which was very exciting. I thought that was so fascinating, and in particular, uh, nuclear fusion. Um, I thought that was going to be the, the next big um, discovery within nuclear physics. Um, hmm. So I always enjoyed that, but I also um, was involved with computer science, computer engineering, uh, so I did a lot of, of that kind of work as well. Uh, again, always loved NASA, so um, when NASA called for an interview, I said, sure, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then uh, was uh, able to pursue my interest in uh, high-performance computing and computing research. Um, which was very exciting. Uh, at the time, this was in the early 90s. Um, and so as computing became more off-the-shelf, commercial off-the-shelf, and you could get a high-powered computer on your desk, um, that research kind of went away. So I went back to, you know, getting into physics more, and nuclear physics in particular. Mm. Um uh, so I went back to grad school to pursue my PhD, and then, yeah, that just kind of blossomed everything. Um, we had a project here um, that was looking at DD fusion and how to facilitate that with electron screening, um, and so I got on board with that project, um, finished my PhD, um, you know, also, well, my thesis was actually in magnetohydrodynamics, um, mm -hmm. which uh, was another interest of mine, uh, especially with hypersonic flight and, and that. So it lent itself well to that. But it really, the nuclear um, fusion side really pulled at me, and our team just took off, and uh, we uh, were able to um, or conduct these experiments that showed um, with with high statistics um, 
that we created DD fusion reactions um, mm. in our deuterated metals with irradiating those metals with um, photon energy, high energy beams of like three MeV. Yeah. So it was very, very exciting. Yeah. So, so tell me, um, Usually, there are some kind of particular moments uh, of realization, or there's one big influencer in your life, like a teacher or a science fiction book or something. Was there something like that in your life that uh, nuclear is where my passion is? It, it kind of happened in little steps along the way. Uh, mm-hmm. But with nuclear fusion, particularly, I was most impressed with. Um, one of my professors at uh, grad school that really <laughs> drilled home the fact that you know fossil fuels aren't going to be here forever, um, you know, and and nuclear fusion can really answer mm-hmm. the call for energy needs. Um, so really, if I had to pick a moment, that was the moment that really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, this is really important for life. Let's pursue that. Well, you were way ahead of your time to note that fossil fuels would not be forever and we needed another solution. So uh, is there, uh, being a woman and in science and math, that is very unusual. Uh, from your undergraduate days, you loved physics. How has that experience of being a woman influenced your professional journey? Um, well, uh, to take it back to high school, I actually went to an all-girl high school, which wow. I think helped me in some respects because I didn't have that bias. There was not, there was no bias there. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. were able to pursue whatever interests you know we wanted as far as academically. You know, what were you really good at? And, and, and we were encouraged uh, to pursue those kinds of um, endeavors. Um, so it was honestly a little bit of a shock when I went to college because all my classmates were um, were men. So that was a little bit it, in physics anyway. Um, yeah. There were there were some women in the computer science part of it. Um, I did minor in computer science. So so there was a bit of an adjustment period, but I just kept I just kept going on. And my, my main mantra, I think, in life within this science community is that I'm a scientist first, I'm a woman second. That, mm-hmm. You know, it just comes down to that. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's move towards your your research work in fusion. And we will talk about lattice confinement fusion in a second. But before we get to that, for our listeners who are not necessarily nuclear scientists, uh, let's set the stage by talking about these different types of fusion and fission as being the two processes that are talked about. And fission is, as I understand it, the the more current, at least commercial power production. And, And fusion is the sort of the the holy grail that 
people, researchers have been trying to get to for a long time, both for safety reasons and for waste reasons. So can you give us a little bit of a comparison of the two and where your lattice confinement fusion work fits into that landscape? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, first, to just go over uh, fission, um, uh, fission happens when you're breaking apart two large atoms, um, and that releases energy. Um, it is quite a bit easier uh, to do to do that with the um, the amount of energy that's needed um, because these are big bulky atoms. Um, there's a lot of neutrons, um, so you know when they're hit with a, a energetic neutron, um, they easily split apart. Um, whereas fusion is much more difficult to orchestrate. Um, mainly because you're trying to um, fuse together two light atoms and they have particularly uh, deuterium, actually hydrogen even, they have positive charges. You know, their nucleuses are positively charged. So to get them to fuse together is difficult because you have to overcome that uh, Coulomb barrier, which, which wants these two positive charges to just to stay away from each other mm. um so in in a lot of different um orchestrations of uh, fusion you can either you know squeeze them together with high pressure to really force those two atoms together um so that's in um well part of it is yeah there's inertial confinement fusion, there's magnetic confinement fusion. So they they use mag, magnet, magnetic fields to steer um, things the right way um, and to, uh, you know, to, to squeeze them together. Whereas lattice confinement fusion takes advantage of the, of the lattice of metal atoms um, and it, um, the, the fuel, the deuterium fuel, can nestle within the lattice of, of atoms. Now, in order to um, decrease that Coulomb barrier, you need something to encourage the two positive charges to, to merge together. Um, you can do that by using the electrons in the lattice. Uh, metals have a lot of electrons. Um, so the electrons, um, perform uh, perform like a shield in between the positive um, atoms. So they, with that screen, the, the the positive atoms look neutral to each other. And then, with uh, some sufficient kinetic energy, uh, whereas you have the one deuterium atom uh, stationary and the um, other deuterium atom uh, gets uh, moved by maybe another neutron, like a neutron uh, particle that imparts its kinetic energy. So there's, there's movement there. And with sufficient, um, you know, energy, it's able to fuse together with the help of those electrons. I see. And when it fuses, it releases energy? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Incomparable. It can, it can either, um, 
they can either create, uh, there's two main PAS um, products, if you will, with the DD Fusion. You can uh, join the, the deuterium atoms together and it will create a um, 2.45 MeV neutron and then a uh, helium-3 atom, or it can create a 3 MeV proton and a uh, tritium mm -hmm. uh, atom. So, so there's those the two main paths. Now, there's another path that's got a very low probability, but it could totally fuse the two deuterium atoms together to create helium-4. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. there's different... Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, different powers or different energies that are really depending on what. Um, so, yeah, so I understand that fusion research has been going on for a long time. Is this kind of fusion also called cold fusion? Uh, it has been in the past. Um, the last confinement fusion, um, we really, we don't consider it cold fusion because um, the lattice may be at room temperature. However, the, um, the, the, the kinetic energy transfer that happens is it, it, the, the local area where the DD fusion happens is very, very, very hot. Yeah. So, um, okay. Yeah, yeah, because cold fusion was in the news recently for not such positive news that oh. the researchers had been fudging data or something. But this is a whole different line yes, of research. Is, right. Yeah. Right, yeah. And, and so let's talk a little bit about the application of this in the current landscape of energy. So we are uh, currently 80% still fossil fuel, probably the same level that when you were a little girl thinking, or when you were in graduate school thinking this is an important thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, what is what what role can this sort of fusion, lattice confinement fusion play in, in creating viable commercial power? And how far away is that reality? Mm. Um. Well, there's all kinds of different applications. Uh, working at NASA, we do need to work on, um, you know, these technologies for specific NASA missions. Mm -hmm. And we definitely see the benefit for um, this last confinement fusion where um, it can be a, a power supply for um, small uh, robotic probes um, that... Um, that are going to be in harsh environments uh, or dusty environments would work because the solar panels uh, would, you know, wouldn't work because of the, the dust and, and the accumulation of the dust on the solar panels. Um, it also has to be um, self-contained and highly controllable um, where last confinement fusion can, can do that. And it also can... Uh, decrease the amount of radi radioactive materials that it emits uh, versus uh, regular fission. Um, so there's some, there's some main advantages, um, especially for NASA missions. Mm -hmm. It can also be uh, used terrestrially, um, you know, for like, you know, electric power uh, generation. 
um, it, 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 you know, the grand vision, I, how many years off, it, it, it could be uh, many years off, but, you know, having a nice, small, self-contained, you know, um, nuclear fusion reactor uh, to power your home um, is another application where this could be useful. Oh, wow. So you could just put them at home level and we would not be connected to the grid then. We could it's, just... It, yeah, it's very, very possible. Yeah. 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 So in, in space applications, uh, I think the the conditions are even more, much more demanding because there's already ambient radiation from multiple sources. How do you shield your processes from that intervening radiation? Um, there's um, a lot of that engineering still needs to be worked out. At least the details need to be worked out. Um, however, um, when in our experiments of irradiating um, our uh, deuterated metals, for instance, it, it really didn't harm the system. It actually encouraged um, the fusion reactions to happen. So, so the uh, the space radiation really I don't see as a big detriment for this kind of um, fusion technology. Okay. Yeah. Um, so could this, uh, in terms of practical applications on Earth, such as in, in power production, uh, it, your assessment is that this could be done economically at uh, various scales, including from home to perhaps small campuses or maybe a ship or something like that? What, talk to us a little bit about the economic, economics of it, because it seems to me that the fuels that we choose to use right now, largely fossil, are heavily driven by the economics. As solar and wind becomes more economical, more of it gets used. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, traditionally, what happens with the new technology is that the uh, when it first gets employed, um, it, it's it's more much more costly um, after the infrastructure is built um, after you know the technology is is well defined uh, those costs um, do seem to go go down um, now you know the inherent materials needed to um, build uh, this type of technology um, it's not outrageous um, you know it's not like we need you know, gold metals, um, mm -hmm. you know, we could use titanium, we could use palladium, um, or erbium, uh, all those are, are pretty, you know, well, uh, you know, uh, as far as like cost, um, and they're not, you know, high cost materials. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I, I, it's, it's hard to say at this point, um, yeah. exactly the cost. Um, but initially, but, yeah, like any, with any new technology, it's going to cost a little more until, just like yeah. the solar panels, you know, same thing happen with that. Yeah, so the the nuclear, the conventional nuclear, fission-based nuclear, I think their costs are falling now somewhere in between fossil and the renewables. And I think a large part of it is because of the scale. I mean, you put out an 80 megawatt plant or something, it 
naturally per unit costs are lower. But here we are talking about much smaller scale because you want them at campus size. So that it'll be interesting at some point to dig deeper into the economics of it. Okay, let's let's move on from, from talking about fusion and the technology to a couple of other topics that I want to cover. One is around uh, this issue of how we are doing science, both in the nuclear uh, engineering space, but also generally. Uh, we Science is divided into a lot of different silos. You yourself have been through uh, magnetodynamics and other fields, and now there are so many different fields uh, that we don't get a holistic understanding of the problem. We kind of dig deep into a narrow space. And some people have been saying that we need to become more interdisciplinary, more transdisciplinary to overcome these silos and work collectively. Is that something that you have been practicing? Because your field seems to naturally involve many different areas of expertise, many different topics. So tell us a little bit about how you handle that interdisciplinary challenge. Um, yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, the, yeah, when our, when our team was at our largest, we had um, uh, nuclear physicists, physicists, we had experimental physicists, um, theoretical um, physicists, so as far as the science part of it. And then we had a lot of engineers, technicians, um, material scientists. Um, and I, I think what ultimately happens is that once you have um, that buy-in from everybody on the team and you have a leader that can gather all the necessary talents together um, and you're, you're all focused on that one goal, um, great things happen. Um, this, this research team uh, from Last Confinement Fusion, it's just a wonderful group of people who, you know, we were all of one mind. We, we did have you know, appropriate amount of um, people playing devil's advocate and saying, you know, is this really, really real and challenging us to um, to really make sure that our data and our results were, um, you know, were uh, up to scientific standards. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's it, it takes, I think it really takes a person to, um, at the top leading the team to really recognize all the different skill sets. And we're very fortunate here at NASA that we have a lot of different um, skill sets that are um, at our fingertips and yeah. build so many different systems. Yeah. 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 So that's interesting. Uh, I think managing the team, coordinating, communicating, facilitating a diverse team is one set of skills that, the leaders, even at the project level and higher level, should ha need to have. Uh, so I have two questions here. One is NASA as an institution, how does it encourage people to have that broader view and be sort of team-oriented and, and bring different types of knowledge to bear on a project? And the second question, I can repeat it later on, is around 
outside of the team, communicating with the communities, whether they are scientific or people, because you're dealing with nuclear stuff and Mm -hmm. it affects communities, at least their perceptions. So let's begin with NASA as an institution, how it encourages this interdisciplinary coordination. Yeah, um, I think a lot of that comes from the the leadership at the top. Um, but the very nature of the things that we build, um, we we know we need to have you know electrical engineers, um, material engineers, uh, material scientists, and and analytical people. Um, I guess uh, being here for so so long, it's it's. It seems to flow naturally here. Um, mm-hmm. It just, yeah. But again, you know, it, it comes from the top on, and and the project managers, um, they all um, recognize the interdisciplinary um, nature of of our work. So um, again, yeah, it seems to flow naturally here. It's like a part. It's part of the culture, you would yeah. say. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. definitely part of the culture. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and with regard to the external community mm-hmm. community engagements? Um yeah, the um you know, NASA always is big in the news and you know, what are we doing and, and you know, especially what the missions that we're um, undertaking in, in space, especially and then we also have aeronautics. Um research that we do here too so um it it's it is fun to engage with the um the public on um educating them on the scientific uh, endeavors that we've, we've got going on um so you know things like the, the nasa innovative advanced concepts symposium um mm-hmm. where any anyone who's interested in science is invited to come and, and learn about what we're doing so those kinds of um, opportunities are, are are great, and it's, it's fun to be included in those types of. Um, yeah, so so well. those are sort of one way from NASA educating the public. Is there any mechanism for public to shape the kind of work or thinking that is going on at NASA? Um, there's. I don't know of specific avenues um, for that, um, but you know we do hear you know public opinion, and um, we do um, uh, you know listen to the scientific news out there. Um, we also um, we do have uh, opportunities for the public to help us name different missions, um, and also. Um, we have we have we do have a segment um, that I used to know about a little bit more where um, the public can you know answer calls of different scientific uh, challenges and um, um, you know we, we can gather all that information um, from folks so there are, yeah. there are some 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 avenues for that yes yeah yeah well I think in doing pure science of the kind that you all are doing it probably is not that critical but once it starts getting applied to terrestrial applications like nuclear energy production 
I think more inputs from the public will sort yeah. of naturally find their way into these programs. That's true. That's yeah. True. Right now, our focus obviously is on uh, specific NASA missions and where this um, this energy uh, source can be useful for. Yeah. Yeah. So so let's look a little deeply into this energy challenge that we are facing. It seems to be at the heart of virtually everything that is happening in terms of climate change and biodiversity and ocean acidification, what have you, all the problems of the Anthropocene, as some people are calling it, are fundamentally linked to energy. We need to figure out a more clean and safe way of producing energy. And nuclear clearly has a a place on the table in the portfolio of energies. It has been there for 50, 60 years, and there are new dimensions of research that could actually make it safer. So talk to us about the role uh, of nuclear fusion uh, and particularly lattice confinement fusion in solving some of the big challenges that the Earth is facing through through clean energy production, which is what led you into this field to begin with. Oh, right, right, right. So um, the the fuel that you're that you need uh, for this kind of uh, fusion is readily available. Um, you know, hydrogen is the most abundant uh, element. Uh, you know, so so obtaining the fuel needed for this energy production is 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 pretty easy. Yeah. Um, and so. And then, you know, with the byproducts of the after the reactions happen, are also things that um, are not highly radioactive. Um, for example, tritium has a 12 year half life, it's very low uh, radiative uh, material, and then it could be used for other things. So, a lot of the the product can be recycled and used in other ways. Like for our hybrid fusion fast fission uh, concept, um, we use the fusion neutrons um, from the DB fusion reactions and are able to fission non-fissile materials, which are not really reactive on their own. Um, they, they can fission, um, uh, but they they do not go into like um, unsafe critical mode where you know it, the the fission reactions take off uh, uncontrollably. Uh, whereas you know the the fusion reactions are very controlled. We can turn the fusion reactions off, which then would turn off the fission reactions. So if you don't need the power source anymore, um, it's highly controllable. So. So those are some some things that can really be advantageous um, uh, for energy production. Um, mm. Yeah, uh, and and I think the biggest advantage is there's no carbon being yes. produced, emitted into the atmosphere, right? That's correct. Which is yeah. the big challenge for climate change. Right. So, yeah. So, so to me, it looks like the technology is is very promising, but the the legacy of the fission type of nuclear is going to make it challenging to 
bring it out into large scale commercial use. Uh, what can be done to prepare the public to understand, first of all, the differences between fission and fusion yeah. and the benefits of fusion? Yeah, so yeah. yeah. the other uh, benefit with fusion over fission is um, after uh, a while, a nuclear reactor has a lot of waste that is difficult to, um, I say, manage um, after it's been used up. Um, so the, um, the actually with the hybrid fusion vision concept, you can actually take the radioactive waste from the traditional fission reactors. Um, it's called depleted uranium. So it's, it's, it's not highly enriched anymore. Um, it's depleted. So we can actually use that. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it, it kind of works hand in hand. Um, mm -hmm. There's there's a uh, avenue for recycling that uh, waste material. So it, it really helps um, that industry actually, you know, uh, mm -hmm. be maintained. Because I think there's a, there's a place for both fusion and and fission in energy production. So, mm. um, and and they can work together in a kind mm -hmm. of circular economy. Yeah. You take the waste yeah. from one and yeah. use it as an input into the other. Right. Yeah. Wow, that would right. be amazing. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Very good. Uh, let's see. Um, I have a few other general questions over here that I want to uh, share with you. Uh, one is just about the, the future. Where is this uh, kind of science and research evolving to? Uh, what do you see as the next few big breakthroughs that need to happen mm. to make to achieve a reasonable uh, application yeah. result? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, you know we're at we're definitely at a fundamental place as far as LCF. Um, however, we're, we're with each experiment we do, which uh, we, we learn something new and we learn how to better uh, orchestrate the, um, the reaction. Um, so, you know, once we have that foundation pretty solid and we can replicate the same results time and time again, then we can um, move into scaling up um, the reactions and, you know, how do we sustain them, um, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I think we're in a good place right now for mm. that. Uh, I mean, personally, I've, I've learned a lot as far as how to orchestrate um, these reactions and to have them occur more often. Because it is a prob game of probability. I mean, uh, even even with fission reactions, there's there's probability, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And the higher the probability of the reactions happening, you know, the more energy you can get out. So, um, so yeah. So we're at a really, I think, good place uh, right now, especially with um, doing a hybrid approach where you can take the good things of the fusion reactions and the good things of fission and marry them together. Mm -hmm. So I'm very, I'm looking 
forward to to really um, pushing forward the fusion fission concept. Yeah. So this fission fusion concept is it happening? Like there's already accumulated fission waste that is available, right? Uh, low enriched uranium, which is sitting somewhere. I don't know what the quantities are, but does the can all of it be cleaned up, sort of cleaned up this uh, way? Potentially, I, it could. A potential, yeah. I mean, if we we make the strides um, that I'm hoping we make as far as scaling up these reactions, you know, <laughs> we're, we're going to need more and more fuel as we go. So wow. It's potentially possible. Yeah. Okay. So if if there was one experiment. Uh, in in your area that you could conduct, and there was no limits to how much money you could spend. You had all the resources. What would that be? Uh, let's see. Um, the experiment. Um, well, I think if we could um, have a two. Um, Deuteron beam machine, you know, I don't know, say accelerators, and we could we could directly um, aim these two Deuteron beams toward each other, but we have some kind of um, you know elect electron screening happening at the same time. Um, to get these kinds of Machines, though, it's, it's very, very expensive. But if we could do something like that, we would learn a lot. <laughs> you know, we would actually, you know, be able to pinpoint and, and, and really orchestrate the reactions happening. Because, again, with some of the other ways that we're doing it, um, the probabilities are, are pretty low. If you direct these deuteron beams towards each other. Well, that would the, really help a lot. Uh, that's fascinating. When I, it would help a lot <laughs> to learn what's going on. Well, when I win the Powerball lottery, I know yeah. where to invest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I want to ask a couple of questions about from your whole 30-year career in science and research for students. We, I work at a university, mm-hmm. and particularly for women who are getting into the STEM and STEAM areas, what what are some of the things you would want to advise them and and tell them to be thinking about? Um, yeah, definitely um, pursue what you love. Um, I loved math, I loved science, and I just kept studying. Um, and learning more and more about all the different um, aspects in, in science. Um, and I, I think it's helpful also to uh, find that mentor that can guide you along. Um, I had one in particular who wasn't actually a physicist. She was a chemist. Um, I worked at the Liquid Crystal Institute when I was an undergrad student at Kent State University. And um, I worked for Dr. Mary Neubert, uh, an organic chemist. And 
she took me under her wing. I went from um, cleaning up the lab equipment to um, characterizing um, materials as liquid crystals or not um, mm -hmm. by doing uh, microscope work, um, by doing uh, nuclear magnetic resonant work. Um, so, you know, she really helped me grow my scientific skills uh, in the laboratory and really sparked an interest in, yeah, I really want to do this for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So this mentor, would you suggest uh, for women to find a woman mentor because it is not that easy to... Um, I, I think it's easier nowadays, honestly. Um, yeah. When I was an undergrad, I, I mentioned at, uh, in the physics department, there was not many women at all. Now, right. when I returned to grad school, and it was quite a few years after, it was probably um, uh, 20, about 20 years after um, my undergrad, um, mm. it, it changed. The, 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 the landscape really changed. There was a lot more uh, women that, are, that were majoring in physics, and there, there's kind of like a little bit of a groundswell that's happening uh, among uh, young women that are saying, yeah, this is, you know, this is interesting. And, and the more and more, um, I think there are more and more uh, females women in, yeah. the, in the industry that can take on that uh, mentor role. Yeah. For younger women. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. This is very helpful, I think, uh, and also applies to young researchers. I think finding mentors who can help you figure out the lay of the land can be a big booster for your career. Otherwise, yeah. you sort of flounder and mm -hmm. try to learn things that other people already know. Yeah. Yeah, we are encouraged here at NASA to mentor the younger employees and take on summer interns. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so we do have that. Right. Well, I think we've, we've covered all the topics that I wanted to, but uh, I'd like to give you the last word. If there's something that we overlooked or anything else that you want to emphasize, uh, this is the time. Oh, gosh. Um, hmm. not, not at the moment, other than the, uh, I have uh, been observing, um, you know, from, you know, when Hans and Fleischmann, you know, had their electrolytic experiment um, from now is there is, um, especially in the last 10 years, uh, there's a groundswell of, of actually commercial entities that are really pursuing the fusion world. Um, and there's more and more of a commitment to clean energy, even from the U.S. government. Um, there is there's more opportunity uh, to pursue that kind of, of technology. And so I'm very encouraged um, with the future uh, yeah. and what the future holds for, for nuclear fusion. Yeah. Right. I'm glad to hear that because I don't think just NASA alone okay. can bring the whole right. thing out. You need a whole ecosystem in which private companies play mm -hmm. a role. And when I was at the symposium, the NIAC symposium, I heard the clear message that NASA is inviting 
private companies to join, collaborate, do things with them so that it'll be more easy to bring stuff out to the marketplace when it's ready. Yeah, yeah. that's certainly correct. Yeah, yeah. Very encouraging. Very encouraging. Yeah. On yeah. that encouraging note, we'll bring yeah. this to a close. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Managing Sustainable Futures podcast. If you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Benio, please follow us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you heard this podcast. For more interviews like this, and check out our website at msfutures.net.